If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me back to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 21. And the Lord help me this morning. I'd like to consider with you uh, the passage at the beginning, the first 11 verses. Uh, but by way of a text to uh, focus our minds upon, let me just read verse 5. Uh, which, as you probably have noticed in the reading earlier, is a quotation from Zechariah 9. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. We have in these verses the event in our Saviour's life and ministry uh, usually referred to as the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. And it is, I'm sure, a story familiar to all of us, and perhaps even to the children. It's the sort of thing you'll find in, uh, taught in Sunday school lessons or be in children's Bible story books. Uh, this great image of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon a donkey, riding into Jerusalem, with the people singing praise to him, Hosanna in the highest, and as they did so, putting these palm fronds uh, in front of him as he came into the city of Jerusalem. It is a story that is told by all four gospel writers. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this in varying levels of detail. Uh, and that tells us that it is a very significant event, uh, anything in the Bible, of course, is important. It's God's word. But uh, when God records something four times, uh, then he would wish to draw our attention to it particularly. It is a major event in the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, whilst we're not bound to these things, uh, this particular Lord's Day, six days uh, before the Passover, as it was, uh, is Palm Sunday and is usually the occasion when Christians across the world remember Jesus' entry into, the, into Jerusalem as he came uh, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But what is the significance? Do we understand what took place about, uh, apart from just a, a recognition of the fact of knowing the story? I put it to you that we make the theological and spiritual connections to Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection far better than we do some of the other major events in his life, including, of course, the entry into Jerusalem. His baptism would be another one where, uh, as the Lord's people, perhaps we don't readily see why it was so important. I wonder if we're not like the disciples of whom it was written, uh, in John's account of the triumphal entry, these things understood not his disciples at the first. Uh, they saw it all happening and going on, but wondered, what is this? What is the import, the significance? Yet, as we shall see, it was just as crucial in the great plan of redemption. Why does Jesus enter Jerusalem in the way that he does? Uh, what does it have to teach us today? Well, may the Lord uh, grant us understanding and speak to us out of his word this morning. We take very simply as our theme for this morning the words of verse 5, the opening words, Behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming. And we want to see three uh, aspects about his coming. 
three uh, ways in which he comes. First of all, he comes with authority. Secondly, he comes with meekness. And thirdly, he comes with openness. He comes with authority, with meekness, and with openness. Now, authority is something readily connected with kings. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as the king of his people. And so it's not surprising that we find authority connected with Jesus in a general sense and particularly in this passage. And yet the scope of his authority and the manner in which he administers that authority is totally different from every other ruler, historic or present. For example, even the greatest rulers, even the most powerful men and women are dependent to some extent on their circumstances and on other people for their administration of their authority, for being able to rule. Just to take a very current example, uh, Vladimir Putin is a very, very powerful man, one of the most powerful men in the world, and yet he is being thwarted. He is not able to do exactly as he wants to do because the Ukrainian people are putting up such a fierce resistance. His authority is limited. Uh, but the whole man of Jesus coming into Jerusalem bespeaks a total authority, complete control over absolutely everything he does and says. He is purposeful, deliberately purposeful in how he comes and in how he enters into Jerusalem. Uh, just to back up uh, a moment and uh, trace the context for this uh, entry into Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, had spent around three years in the northern region of Israel, the area of Galilee. That is where most of his miracles, most of his teaching, his sermons had taken place. Uh, but now he knows it is the time for him to fulfill the work that his father has given him to do. And so he makes the journey south. Uh, you've had the confession at Caesarea Philippi there in uh, Matthew 17, verse 22, uh, or rather Matthew 16 and verse 16, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And from then Jesus begins to head south. Uh, about a hundred mile journey down the Jordan River, down to the city of Jericho, and they then come through Jericho and then head uh, east, uh, to, or rather west, to go to Jerusalem. And as Jesus gets close to Jerusalem, he's stopped at the little village of Bethany, where his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom of course he's raised to, uh, from the dead, live. And he spends the Sabbath with them, it would seem, has a meal with them. John records that. And then from there, about two miles or so into Jerusalem, Jesus uh, comes to complete his journey. And he decides to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, this was not spontaneous. Uh, everything about the story tells us that this was planned. This was deliberate. This was purposeful. It wasn't simply there happened to be a donkey by the side of the road and Jesus felt like using that. Uh, or it wasn't that he got tired from having walked 100 miles all the way down from Galilee and thought, well, I could do with a lift. His disciples uh, managed to carry on walking with the rest. There's no hint of Jesus being tired, and he's, of course, spent overnight in Bethany anyway. 
No, this is deliberate. And everything that Jesus did throughout his life was purposeful. It was planned right up until his death. Even that was no accident. It was planned in the minutest detail. He went according to what he determined. So we, we see just his authority uh, being exercised in the way that he comes. But we also see it in the instructions that he gives in verse 2. He says to the disciples, two of them, go into the village uh, over against you or opposite you, and straight away you will find an ass, a donkey, tied, and a colt, uh, that is a young donkey, with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. Uh, Jesus says there's a village over there. And at the crossroads, I think Mark gives us that detail, uh, there is a young donkey and its mother. I need them. Bring them to me. Now perhaps Jesus had some prior knowledge that there were donkeys in that particular village. But really this seems to hint uh, and describe far more clearly his total knowledge of all things, his divine omniscience. He knew what was in that village. He knew those animals were there. He saw them at the cross point in the village opposite and he determined to have them because everything is his. Absolutely all creation belongs to him. Psalm 50 uh, tells us, uh, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all of the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. They all belong to him. For he has spoken the whole world into existence and he sees these two donkeys and he needs them for his purpose, his work of redemption. And so he commandeers them, shows his authority over all creation. We see the authority uh, in the ready agreement of the disciples. There's no hint of them resisting that or questioning it at all. They do it straight away. Uh, they go and find exactly as he said. And we also see his authority exhibited in what he says to them that they are to mention if anyone asks any questions. You can just imagine it, can't you? These two men walk into a village and they find a couple of donkeys in a field or tied up and start taking them away. And someone thinks, well, we don't recognize these men. Who are they? Well, why are they take? What are you doing with them? And Jesus said, well, if anyone asks you anything about why you're taking these donkeys, this is what you're to say. The Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. And Jesus knew that would be enough. It would be enough. The Lord needs them. I wonder if there are things in our lives that the Lord might put his finger upon and says, I need that in my servants. Uh, whether uh, it is our children, letting them go to serve him whether it is some money uh, that the Lord says, that's mine, I, I need it for my kingdom. Are we willing to let those things go? Whatever it is, our time, our talents, to yield them all to the Lord because the Lord has need of them. And finally, we see his authority evident in his ability to fulfill personal predictions concerning him made about 500 years ago. 500 years before this, Zechariah had uh, given his prophecy, uh, which we have there mentioned or quoted by Matthew in verse 5. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal 
of an ass. Now Matthew, in his Gospel record, has stressed this all the way through. Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies, specific, really specific prophecies uh, concerning himself. You have quite a number, particularly in chapter 2. So in verse uh, 5 and 6 of Matthew 2, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, quoting from Micah 5. Uh, And then in verse uh, 15, uh, he was there until the death of Herod in Egypt, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. And there are uh, various others as well. I put it to you, it's a very hard thing to accomplish, to actually fulfill predictions that have been made about you. Uh, We can put all our effort and energy into doing it, but circumstances can thwart us. It's a particularly difficult thing to uh, be born in a particular place. Uh, That is something that nobody can do apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. But our Lord Jesus fulfilled these predictions about himself multiple times, multiple times, showing his complete authority over all things. Nothing could stop it, nothing could prevent it. He has complete authority over animals, his followers, even strangers who will let these donkeys go. The whole world is his. And Matthew just presents it as a matter of course. This was done so that the prophet's words might be fulfilled. And this was done. Well, Jesus comes into Jerusalem then as the king with great authority. Let me ask you, is his authority in your life? Is he ruling and reigning upon the heart, your heart? Are you yielded to him? Have you taken your heart and said, Lord, this is my life. I don't want it. I give it freely to you. For you have redeemed me by your blood. Therefore, I belong to you. And I will serve you and no other. If his authority is in our life, then we need fear nothing. Because he will rule us and reign us, reign over us. He will protect us and defend us. Uh, how much we need authority uh, and the protection of a king, particularly in the present world. You think of all the troubles there are in the world, uh, Ukraine, and we worry what will happen about that. Will Vladimir Putin hit the red button? Who knows? But if we are under the gracious reign of Jesus Christ, then we are safe. We need his authority. But secondly, if authority is a quality usually associated with royalty, then meekness certainly is not. This is not something you would associate readily with kings and queens, emperors and other rulers. And in many ways, meekness is a quality that the world despises. It's looked down upon. Uh, Meekness is weakness, people would say. And yet this is the specific quality that Matthew focuses our attention on because uh, he doesn't quote everything from Zechariah 9. Uh, Zechariah speaks about uh, the Messiah coming as just and having salvation. Uh, Speaks about him in that way, but Matthew just lights upon uh, the word lowly, or as he puts it, meek. Uh, Jesus is the meek one that comes sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal 
of an ass. Meekness is a specific focus of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Blessed are the meek, Jesus says there in Matthew 5 and verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. And who can forget our Lord's beautiful words, so attractive, so appealing to all of us. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus is the meek and lowly saviour. And that's symbolised, or you might say replicated, pictured by the animal he rides upon. He rides upon a a colt, a young donkey. It is a a beast of burden, as someone has put it, a a work animal, and a young one at that. great tenderness and meekness in the Lord Jesus Christ that he he took a a young donkey I think Mark tells us that nobody had ever ridden it before and Jesus doesn't take that young donkey away from its mother but out of compassion even for a donkey he brings its mother along as well do we see see how meek he is he rides then upon this colt not some great war horse as a great conquering warrior as he comes into Jerusalem. 300 years before this, somebody else had ridden in as a great conquering warrior on some magnificent steed, probably. Alexander the Great, as he conquered Jerusalem and went on to conquer so much of the known world at that time. That is how he decided to enter Jerusalem. Jesus, who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he comes in on a donkey. And it's really the symbol of peace because it's, the animal that's used when uh, there's no warfare, when agriculture and so on is able to carry on, uh, the ground is able to be tilled, crops sown and planted, uh, the donkey is a symbol of peace. And also Jesus' clothing. Uh, we don't, we're not told specifically what he was wearing, but he's plain. He's not got any great regalia. There's no pomp and ceremony. The, the trappings of royalty are nowhere to be found at all. This is just... Jesus of Nazareth coming in in his ordinary clothing. He enters then. He comes to his people, the daughter of Zion, as the meek one. But what is meekness? I've perhaps hinted at it a little bit in one or two of the things I've said. Uh, It's a word that's hard to define, particularly the original is almost impossible to put into English. I think the ESV has it as humble, and that's certainly a um, uh, one way in which it could be translated that ca- captures a shade of meaning. Uh, it's hard to define, uh, and there is some overlap with humility, but there is a distinction to be made. Uh, whereas humility is thinking uh, a lot less of ourselves, having low thoughts of ourselves and higher thoughts of God and of others, uh, meekness is really an inner quality of soul that doesn't fight against God, uh, doesn't fight against the providences that he ordains in our lives. And that uh, uh, attitude, that mindset, shows itself in a gentleness, uh, a gentle spirit not imposing our will onto others. Uh, if you want to put in terms of opposites, this can sometimes be a, a way to understand things. It's the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. Well, our society is all about being assertive, isn't it? You go for a job interview and you've got to sell yourself. 
You've got to promote yourself. You've got to be assertive. You've got to stand up for your rights. But Jesus is the total opposite. He is the meek one. Uh, my uh, professor at seminary, uh, Dr. Jerry Bilkers, he preached on this passage and he described it as soft of soul. Jesus is the one who's soft of soul. There's no calluses on his soul at all. There's no armour around him. There's no defensiveness. He is the meek one. Now, of course, Scripture tells us about somebody else that was particularly meek. Uh, that was Moses in Numbers 12 and verse 3, that he was meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And that passage sheds light upon what that virtue is like because uh, Moses was subjected to unjust criticism. Uh, Miriam and Aaron spoke against him and they said, has the Lord only spoken by Moses? Hasn't he also spoken by us? And Moses could have protested straight away and stood up and said, no, you're wrong. We don't hear Moses saying anything, uh, at least to begin with. And then later on, when uh, the Lord judges uh, Miriam and she became leprous, white as snow, and uh, Moses then prays, uh, Lord, heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. He's soft of soul. Yes, she's done wrong, but Moses wants her to be healed even though she is guilty. Moses was meek of soul. Jesus is meeker still. He is the one who will not break the bruised reed. He will not quench the smoking flax. You know that uh, a reed and it's bruised so it's ready to break. And you and I, we take that in our hands and either through clumsiness we'll just break it or we'll just look at it and think a bruised reed, useless. Throw it in the bin. Smoking flax, yeah, it's just ready to go out. There's, there's no flame left. It's just smoking. We think it's a, a waste of time or we just too rough with it and whatever little spark is left is gone but Jesus no he's meek and so he's gentle with those things how much we need his meekness that tells us friends that we can come to him just as we are we don't fear him dealing roughly with us but he will be gentle with us no matter what our problems, no matter our sins and how we have treated him, he is the shepherd who will go out after the lost sheep. He is the one like the prodigal's father welcoming his son home uh, in the way that he did. We need someone who's meek because we live in a world full of people that are not meek and we put up defences, we put up barriers and we get nervous about opening ourselves up before others. But with Jesus, we can come just as we are without one plea, but that his blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. Let me put it to you as an illustration. If we go to the dentist and we find that he's a bit, a bit clumsy in his work and, of course, causes a bit of us a bit of pain, well, the next time we need to go to the dentist, we will not go back. We'll ask our friends and find somewhere else, won't we? Because toothache is one of the worst things, and nobody really enjoys going to the dentist. We, we, we put up, we find.
find another place to avoid that hurt. But we never need fear. That was Jesus. And how, how we've proved it if we know him. Never been pushed away. And we, we see it throughout his whole life. He just welcomes the, the sick and the suffering, the children, just the, 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 the vulnerable, all those members of society that were despised. He welcomed them. He had every right, of course, to come into this world, to come with judgment, uh, to banish us all to a lost eternity. But here he comes, sitting upon a donkey, riding into Jerusalem with great meekness. The world may deride such meekness, but to the true child of God to behold Jesus as the meek one, oh, he is altogether lovely. He's the fairest, the chiefest among 10,000. But thirdly and finally this morning, we see the openness with which Jesus comes. For three years, Jesus had largely kept his identity under wraps and had deliberately prevented disclosure of who he was. For 30 years, he'd grown up largely unnoticed in the rural backwaters of Israel. Uh, that would be a bit like uh, in Galilee, that's a bit like growing up in Suffolk, where I'm from. That's uh, uh, country uh, bumpkin territory. Uh, there he was, just working in Joseph's carpenter's shop. Uh, but then he'd embarked upon his public ministry. But even as he did, and uh, people began to realise who he was, he told them to be quiet about it. Uh, that can be a confusion uh, head scratcher for some of the Lord's people why did Jesus tell them not to go and tell everybody about him well it was because at that point he wasn't ready in his plan for everybody to know uh, so for example in Mark chapter 1 and verses 24 and 25 after he'd healed this man in the synagogue in Capernaum uh, he uh, the, the unclean spirit that was in this man cried out leave us alone what have we to do with Thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Be quiet. He wanted to stop all that talk about him being the Holy One of God. Uh, Matthew 9 and verse 30, uh, Jesus had healed some blind men, and again he told them, Be quiet. And when when his disciples openly confess him in Matthew 16, he tells them not to make that public. He charged his disciples they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Don't tell anyone that I am the Messiah. And yet now, things are different. Because to put it in John's terms, Jesus knows that his hour has come. The time has come for his full unveiling to the whole of Israel. The time has come when everyone will see him and in God's purposes through the hatred of the Pharisees he will be arrested, uh, subjected to a mock trial and then crucified. And so he rides into Jerusalem on the back of this colt openly. He is lifted up above the people so he can be seen. He wants to be seen. He could have walked in. He'd walked all the way from Galilee. But he doesn't want to walk in or slip in the back door into Jerusalem. No, he wants to come in so people see him and know that he is coming. And as he comes in, people 
use whatever props they have to hand in order to lord and honour the arriving king. They take their, um, disciples take their clothes and put them on the colt because they didn't have uh, riding tackle, as we might call it today. Uh, and others in the, this very great multitude, uh, some coming out of the city, some coming behind Jesus, they put their garments uh, in the way, spreading them on there. And others looked up to the, the palm trees uh, and cut some of those down, the uh, date palms, uh, in order to uh, present uh, some kind of carpet, you might say. Uh, they didn't have a red carpet to roll out for the king, and so they did their best in the circumstances. And as he comes in and is, comes openly, he receives the praise of the people. He doesn't tell them to be quiet now. No, he receives it. And later on, he'll, uh, when the uh, scribes and chief priests uh, accuse him about this, uh, he uh, justifies it, he explains it by quoting from Psalm 8. But they, the, just, the multitudes cry out to him, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is probably a quote from Isaiah. Uh, from Psalm 118, verse 25. And literally it means, Lord, save now, please. Save now, please. Although by this time it was probably just a uh, general ascription of praise, just something that people would use unthinkingly, as we can often do with uh, words today, not realising their historic meaning. But that is what they were saying Hosanna, Lord, save now, please. And what an appropriate thing for them to say as Jesus comes into the city to do that very thing, to save his people from their sins because he is Jesus. That is what his name means. He comes as the one in the name of the Lord. That is, he comes under God's direction, with God's authority, and he comes to do God's work. He comes to fulfill the greatest work that God has had, greater than even creation. He comes to bring in redemption. And he receives the adulation of the crowd as he does so. The whole city was sent into a turmoil by this. The, the, the word, I don't know what, it's in the, uh, what it is in the ESV, but... Uh, in the King James, the city was moved, it was shaken, it was stirred. The, the word has references really to an earthquake. There was an earthquake when Jesus died, there was an earthquake when he rose again from the dead. In some ways you could say there was an earthquake when he came into the city. It, it was turned upside down. Well, who is this? What is all this commotion about? Who, who is this that's causing so much hubbub? This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Now opinions are split on this. Uh, they certainly spoke truly. He was a prophet. Indeed, he is the prophet. He was from Nazareth in Galilee. But I think they do our Lord a disservice here. They haven't recognized, they haven't grasped who he is and what is really going on. They would better say this is the Messiah. Our king has come. This is him of whom the prophets spoke. But no, he's just this great teacher from up north. A prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. 
you asked a Muslim who Jesus is and you gave that answer, they'd be happy with that. A Muslim could subscribe to Jesus being a prophet from Galilee of Nazareth. But that falls far, far short of who he really is. Who is Jesus to you this morning, my friends? Who is he? I don't mean that in some sort of postmodern sense, truth is what you make it kind of idea. Everything is subjective, there's no objectivity at all. But who is he to you? If you ask that question, who is this? What would your answer be? Would you be able to say, he is my Lord, he's my saviour, he's my prophet, my priest, my king, my everything, my all in all, the Lord of glory, my hope, all my salvation, my peace, my joy, my righteousness. He's everything. Do you believe, this morning my friends, what God has said about his son? Do you believe what Jesus said about himself? What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. John Newton wrote, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of me. So Jesus comes openly. Satan works covertly and deceptively, but God's greatest acts have been done the full blaze of the full public gaze of the whole world. As Paul would later say, this thing was not done in a corner. It was done openly and clearly. And Jesus comes openly because he intends to die openly. He is coming so that people will know him, the Pharisees will know that, yes, here he is. Now we can get our hands on him. And yet it will all be by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God as Jesus offers himself up as a king. He comes to take his throne, but not a throne of gold, a throne of wood. And he will not sit upon it, but he will hang upon it. He will die as the king of the Jews, only five days after this event. Matthew, quoting Zacharias, says, Tell you, the daughter of Zion, speak to the church of God. This is a message for the Lord's people. Behold, your king is coming to you. He came to his people 2,000 years ago. We need him to come to us again today. And he comes with authority. He comes with power. But he exercises that power with true and infinite meekness. So gentle, so lowly, so kind and compassionate is he. He is in control of absolutely everything. Viruses, world governments, plans for world domination, you name it, whatever it is. He's in control of all of it. And he is willing that none should be king of their own lives, but they should all come and be his subjects. Oh, my friends, how we need to hear this message of our king coming with authority, with meekness, with openness. He, he, he shows himself to us today, not on a donkey, but he rides in the chariot of his word and in the power of his Holy Spirit.
He hides nothing. Let us not be those that hide anything either. Let us not keep our light under a bushel. But let us be his, live for him, and show this great king to all the world.